0: Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker.
1: How many existentialists does it take to screw in a light bulb?
0: I don't know. Two.
1: One to screw it in, and one to observe how the light bulb itself symbolizes a single incandescent beacon of
2: subjective reality in another world of endless absurdity reaching out toward a maudlin cosmos of nothingness.
3: Got that? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Keshni Kushup author of the brand new graphic novel Tina's Mouth. That'll help
0: break the ice, if you can remember it. Uh, later, we'll speak with Vim Venders, director of the new
3: 3D dance movie Pina. Yes, legs and leotards just shooting off the screen. That's scary. <laughs> also coming up, Kathleen Turner channels the ghost of Molly Ivins, and Star Trek's Mr. Sulu is here with etiquette tips. But first... Some earth news. Except for you, podcast people. Skip news and go directly to show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico
0: Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
3: Later, one of the world's greatest concert pianists tells us about his favorite rock star. Mm. Here's a hint. He did his best work in the 1840s. Ah, Abe Lincoln. No, but I love Abe's <laughs> early stuff. So honest. And coming up, some old school hip hop history. (laughs) Complete with alliteration. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. So all week long, we've seen these culture headlines. Downton Abbey begins its second season here in the US. Russell
0: Brand and Katy Perry are getting a divorce. Kanye
3: is launching a new design organization called Donda. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Pat Morrison. She's the host of Pat Morrison, her show on Southern California Public Radio. Nice title, Pat. Yeah.
4: My name up in lights on radio.
3: And she's a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. What are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend?
4: I would be playing sad violin music about this one, but there's no violin to play it on, because a PayPal exchange, which involved an old violin being sold, resulted in the violin being smashed Wait no, a second,
3: That's that sounds... What happened?
4: So a, a woman sold her violin, $2,500, to someone in Canada. She said she'd had it authenticated. It was a violin that had survived the Second World War, but didn't survive PayPal. <laughs> because when the buyer got it, he questioned the authenticity, even though the seller said she'd had it authenticated. Mm-hmm. And PayPal said, smash it to bits. And he did. <laughs>
0: Why would they ask him to, sm- to smash it to bits? Why not just return it?
4: There is fine print in the PayPal contract which says... Let me get my glasses on. It's that fine. (laughs) PayPal may also require you to destroy the item and provide evidence of the destruction. So the
3: lesson is do not use PayPal if you're selling the Mona Lisa.
4: (laughs) Or the Declaration of Independence, we hope. Right.
3: Sure. Our rights as citizens don't sell those on PayPal. I don't understand what they achieved by having something
4: destroyed. I think they treated it like a bale of marijuana. You just destroy it and nobody gets any money. So
0: basically, like they're saying that this was a fraud. So you have to destroy the, it's, yeah, the fraudulent it's,
3: it's like counterfeit thing. property that you need to eliminate so it doesn't come onto PayPal again.
4: Exactly. That if there's any dispute about this, that <laughs> PayPal can order the destruction of the item in question.
3: Without
0: PayPal having to send out an appraiser or something to make sure it actually is a fraudulent
4: item? The seller said she called many times to PayPal and every time she got the same answer that this was the right thing to do smash
0: so so her antique got smashed and she didn't I, get any
3: money I bet you the whole music had violins in it
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pat
3: Morrison thank you for the small talk a pleasure and now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1980, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang became the first top 40 rap hit ever.
0: Yes, now the folks at your dinner party will surely know the tune and not much else about it. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the story.
5: One of the most important people in rap history wasn't a rapper. Her name was Sylvia Robinson, and she scored big hits as an R&B singer, like 1973's Pillow Talk. Later, she started her own label, Sugar Hill Records. But by 1979, it was almost bankrupt. Sylvia needed a miracle, and she got one at her birthday party that year. She celebrated at a nightclub where she saw something new, a DJ chanting lyrics over a beat. The kids called it rapping. Sylvia decided her label would put out something the world had never seen, a hit rap single. Only problem? She needed a band to perform it. So one night, she had her son drive her around New Jersey to put one together. He introduced her to a pizza store manager named Hank and some other amateur rappers. They'd never played together. But three days later, they cut Rapper's Delight in one take. It sold millions.
6: see, I am Wonder Mike, and i like to say hello. Up
3: to the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, and the purple, and yellow. But first, I gotta
5: it was the song that put hip-hop on the mainstream music map but not everyone was psyched about it hip-hop's originators in the Bronx didn't like being usurped by some Jersey rookies and the first hip-hop hit also caused the first hip-hop copyright controversy when the disco band chic threatened Sugar Hill with legal action for sampling their song good times without permission.
3: So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Moses LeBoy. What a fantastic name. He is the head mixologist at the Red Rooster in Harlem, near the Sugar Hill neighborhood. Moses, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make?
6: Well, you know, I made a cocktail called My Delight, which is uh, one of the quotes in the song. I actually listened to the song a few times last night. Uh, it's amazing,
3: right? The hip hop to the hippie to the hip hop. I mean, how can you not smile?
6: Yeah, exactly. You know, and while I was um, creating this cocktail and uh, researching the group, I bumped into uh, Apache, which is, you know, Jump On It. I didn't realize that Sugar Hill had uh, written that song also.
3: Oh, Jump On It?
6: Yeah, Jump On It. Okay. Jump On It. Jump On It. It's an amazing, (laughs) like, fun song. Uh Uh-huh. And I didn't really realize that, you know, that Sugar Hill uh, had written that song also. Yeah. You know, this song just being so fun and diverse so I really wanted to make something that would definitely hit on those words.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: I came up with a cocktail called My Delight, and it's cognac-based. Uh, cognac, cognac based. Okay. I used a uh, cinnamon-infused simple syrup. Okay, wow. Uh, I used one teaspoon of apple butter uh, just because, you know, we're in the dead of winter here in New York City. It's cold. I felt that you needed something a little warmer, and I feel that apple butter definitely brings that to the table. Okay. Uh, I used some fresh lime juice for acidity. And then I use some Dutchess Colonial Bitters, wow. just to balance everything out. And you know, I put this cocktail together into a martini glass. Okay. And I'm garnishing it with a dehydrated pineapple garnish. Wow. Just so that just so that, that brings in some color. It gives you some of that uh, paradise, you know, tropical note to it. And now you have a. Uh, fun warm cocktail. Yeah,
3: you know, it just occurred to me as you were talking that being a mixologist is kind of like being like a mix master in some level <laughs> in hip hop. You're just sampling all these different things and trying to create something wholly new.
6: Yeah, yeah. So
3: maybe you have a breakthrough single with My Delight.
6: Yeah, maybe.
0: So, Brendan, that drink sounds really tasty. It
3: does. It really does.
0: But I admit, I was going to say it's kind of too playful to represent rap, you know, Mm. the sound of the the mean streets. Mm. But it's like you said, Rapper's Delight is a playful
3: song. That's right. It's OG, original grins. (laughs) I I like to think of it. Gee for gosh, that's fun. Exactly. Maybe. Folks, you can find all our cocktail recipes
0: on our old school website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
3: And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet.
0: He's now one of the biggest stars in the classical world, but he's here to list a few of his favorite tunes
8: by one of the biggest piano stars ever. Hello, my name is Jean-Yves Thibaudet. I'm a concert pianist, and I'm performing this week with the Los Angeles Philharmonic a piece by Franz Liszt. Liszt was probably, I always say, with the Michael Jackson of his time, and he probably invented PR and marketing and everything that we have today. Uh, he was really a rock star. He was going around in those days with his horses and carriages, of course, because that's the way they were traveling. But he went all over Europe, performing everywhere. And I mean, really, people were fainting, taking his gloves. And he was really what you can think of, of a rock star. And that's in the 19th century. Here are three examples why Liszt was a rock star. He was fascinated by a few things, and he had different periods in his life. He was first a very, very bad boy for many years. He had God knows how many mistresses and wives, and just name it, and children, and everything. Uh, and then he ended up on the other extreme. At the end of his life, he became an Abbey, a priest. So he was fascinated by religion, for sure. But at the same time, early in his life, he was also fascinated by the devil. So he wrote a lot of pieces around that, and I'm thinking of one in particular called "Totentanz," which means the dance of the death. And this was based after a painting, a horrible painting, that you just look at it, just makes you, <gasps> you see all the skeleton, all the dead, and, and he was fascinated by that painting. And he wrote a piece that is just unbelievably difficult. It's, inc- it's electrical, I mean, it's so exciting, and so uh, pyrotechnical that it is really just you just want to scream at the end, it's unbelievable. Another piece, Liszt was famous for doing transcriptions. A transcription is taking a piece for orchestra, in this case an opera, so orchestra plus singer, and reusing all of that for the piano to be played with two hands and ten fingers, and that's what Liszt was doing. One of my favorite pieces is the transcription he did of the death of Isolde from the Tristan and Isolde Wagner opera. It was an amazing challenge to have a full like 110 musicians orchestra reduced at the piano for two hands and then on top of that having Isolde with her big line singing on top of that, soaring on top of all of that. And I think it's probably one of the most successful and amazing transcriptions that exists. My third choice is, it's a set of two pieces, but I call them one, but it's in two parts, that I think are some of the most fascinating pieces of his religious period. They're based on uh, two Italian legends. Uh, one is uh, Saint Francis uh, speaking to the birds, and the other one is Saint Paul who is walking on the on the water. It's just what I think is amazing is the spiritual intensity and the spiritual power of those two pieces. Uh, I play them in concert, as I said, many times this year, and every time the audience gets it's, it's over just the excitement. The, the end of Saint-Francois-de-Paul is very loud, very fast, but it's beyond that. It's just you have that incredible power that you feel. he really i think invented a new language for the piano and took the piano and the technique of the piano to a different level that's for sure and that's my list list the guest
3: list from Jean-Yves Thibaudet he performs a concert of list pieces with the LA Philharmonic this week and brendan i just want to point out something mm. here's the opening of that first list tune jean
0: mentioned okay and here's the opening of Deep Purple Smoke on the Water.
3: Right? Wow, lawsuit. Yeah. Franz Liszt totally ripped those guys off. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> no wonder he rocked. Yeah. Uh, we are going to take a break, people. Coming up, Star Trek's George Takei gives us etiquette tips, despite his cloistered life. A woman with stinky feet. I've never heard of such a thing.
3: Warp Factor fun, when the dinner party returns. Welcome back
0: to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
3: I'm Brendan Francis Newham. Coming up, actress Kathleen Turner channels Texas author Molly Ivins, mm. and later actor Justin Shank tells us about his most famous role. Nobody cared when I did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but they love the corpse. There are no small parts, except when you're playing a cadaver. Yeah. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment.
0: <laughs> yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is an actor and human rights advocate. He's best known for playing the role of Mr. Sulu in the original Star Trek, George Takei. Actually, is it Takei or Takai? It's takei, takei.
2: Rhymes with okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I don't object to Takai, uh, which is a legitimate Japanese word spelled T-A-K-A-I, which means expensive. So I'd be more than happy to accommodate. Am I doing this for a fee?
3: <laughs> no, no. No, let's keep it Takei then. Yeah. yeah we can't afford to kai. Takei. Take doesn't mean cheap either. Oh, sorry. <laughs> then you shouldn't be
0: on public radio, my friend. Uh, George Takei, it is a pleasure. It's a great uh, pleasure for me being here. Thanks. Um, we We've got you here this week to answer listener questions about how to behave towards one another, Because you recently were called upon to broker a peace of sorts, correct, between William Shatner and Carrie Fisher? I wasn't called
2: upon. I felt that I needed to step in. (laughs) It's getting rather silly,
3: I think. Can you tell us what happened? Give some background for those of us who don't normally look for Shatner videos online.
2: Well, Bill Shatner, who played Captain Kirk, has a penchant for uh, making outrageous statements whenever he needs attention (laughs) (laughs) And uh, apparently he needed attention again uh, about a month ago because he went viral uh, making uh, statements like uh, Star Wars is derivative and... You know, all sorts of uh, typical Bill Shatner uh, pompous uh, yeah. pontifications. I, I, I like to think
3: of uh, him as T.J. Hooker when he behaves like that.
2: <laughs> you know, a funny thing happened uh, maybe more than a decade ago. He and I were walking together uh, down Sunset Boulevard. People uh, see us and they, they would call us by our character names and people shout out Sulu and I make the uh, Live Long and Prosper sign. And then a car rolled up beside us on the sidewalk and shouted, hey, hooker! And <laughs> Bill turned, and uh, at the same time, three or four other girls
0: <laughs> turned around. That's
3: L.A. Yeah. Sounds like Los Angeles. What an amazing snapshot of Sunset Boulevard. Uh,
0: so Bill Shatner says that basically Star Wars is derivative of Star Trek, and then Carrie Fisher got involved. who's was, of course, Princess Leia in Star Wars. Yes. Carrie Fisher said,
2: Star Trek sounds like a detergent name. (laughs) And it was really getting childish. And I thought they should get rid of this silly nonsense.
3: I think we have a clip of the video you posted. Fellow star folks, cool it down
2: and shut your big wormholes. Each is wonderful in its own special way. What's needed today, now more than ever, is star peace or there is an ominous, mutual threat to all science fiction. It's called Twilight,
0: and it is really, really bad. Brilliant! Star Wars fans <laughs> and Star Trek fans should get along by hating on the Twilight series. <laughs> See, this is the kind of ingenious moral advice we want you to bring to our listeners today. Well, I wanted to define the common ground, you know. You got, you nailed it, man. Yeah. Well, we have we have questions from our listeners, and perhaps you can uh, train your moral compass uh, towards these. Are you ready for these? My moral compass isn't. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's uh, the first question comes from Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Very straightforward. Uh, how soon in my dating relationship should I bring up the fact that I love Star Trek?
2: Well, <laughs> uh, if he's dating someone and he know he if he's a passionate uh, lover of Star Trek, I think uh, he would naturally be attracted to someone who. Shares that with him, so it should be immediate. (laughs) Why hold off? You know, you want to get going at uh, warp rather than impulse
3: power. (laughs) But what if he's dating Carrie Fisher?
2: Uh. Well, you know, frankly, actually, Star Trek owes something to Star Wars, because uh, Star Trek was uh, very low-rated when we were on first run. Oh, yeah, mm. right. It wasn't until Star Wars exploded at the box office. Ah. That's what gave rise to... Uh, the uh, green head of uh, greed on the part of uh, Paramount executives. And they decided, well, we have a sci-fi project, too. And that's what gave birth to the
0: first Star Trek motion picture. Wow. So basically you're saying that they they could they should get along, Star Trek and Star Wars fans. So don't be afraid. Just, just tell them. Exactly that.
3: <laughs> well right. done, Jordan. Well, we have another question. This one comes from Jenny in Berkeley, California. Excuse me if this question is a little uncouth," says Jenny. <laughs> uncouth. Uncouth. Yeah. What do you do when a host asks you to take off your shoes upon entering the house, but your feet stink or you have holes in your socks? Mm. Problematic. Well, first of all,
2: I think his uh, hygiene leaves something to be desired. Then <laughs> uh, I would
0: suggest he regularly. Just bath- sorry to interrupt you. It's a she. It's Jenny what it's her name is jenny it's a she
3: oh it's It's a she she. yes even worse
0: a woman with stinky feet
2: (laughs) i've never heard of such a thing (laughs) so for one thing uh, i think she should bathe regularly including her feet Uh, you don't take a bath with your feet hanging over the side true and uh if she's very religious she might consider her socks holy but i wouldn't take that literally no
3: all right so she should darn her socks and uh, bathe with her feet in the tub no more handstands in the shower jenny <laughs> exactly bad. well we have a we have another question here this is from melissa in oklahoma this is a long one it's a long one but but it's worth it let's yeah. see I was a guest at a birthday dinner, and my host had three ginormous, creepy, standard poodles. She Mm. doesn't mince words. Ginormous. 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 Uh One of these poodles was very ill-behaved, and every time I moved, it would jump and snarl and bark at me. Mm. Rather than putting the dogs outside, my hostess actually thanked me for socializing her dog. Mm -hmm. She went on to say that they were just like her children. Of course, she does not have any children. (laughs) I just suffered in silence and tried to be very still the entire evening. I have often wondered, what might I have done Differently. Yeah. Well, I love
2: dogs and I love children. Mm. Mm. So you're in a quandary. But I hate barking dogs that are ill mannered or children that are ill mannered. You know, yeah. I'm a runner and uh, snarling, barking dogs are our nemesis. <laughs> right. And uh, if the hostess is exhibiting that lack of etiquette, I think she needs to be educated, graciously, of course. Mm. Oh, I love dogs too, but you know, your dog is making me uncomfortable. Could we have the dog taken out? That's mm.
3: the only way to handle it, I think. And by taking out, you don't mean shot,
2: <laughs>
0: do you? <laughs> Put to sleep, we call it in the civilized world, Brendan.
3: That's right. What a thought. I have a friend who'll do me a favor for your dog. <laughs> oh my um, God! And of course, Melissa also has the option of not bathing her feet next time she shows up at the house and kind of <laughs> passive-aggressive retaliation.
0: That'll show her, <laughs> George Takay. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a lot of fun. May you live long
3: and prosper folks we know you're doing something wrong yes and perhaps simon dunan fashion savant can help you set things right next week he'll be here to answer your etiquette questions Mm. so if you're in a pickle have a dilemma or find yourself in an awkward situation or
0: if you simply want to hear your name and the name of the town you're from on the radio Contact us at dinnerpartydownload.org and tell us what your problem is exactly.
3: Or you can call the DPD hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. That's 213-621-3554. drop Actress Kathleen Turner plays the late great newspaper columnist Molly Ivins in a new one-woman theater piece called Red Hot Patriot. It's West Coast premieres this week. Today we overhear her performing a few dinner party-worthy excerpts all about Molly's native state.
9: Lord, but I do love Texas. Oh, it's a harmless perversion. I love the gritty, down-to-the-ground quality of Texans. Our love of a good yarn, the piss and vinegar of our speech. I like the pleasant, open vulgarity of Texans. All right, take that great song uh, from Lubbock. Now, scholars believe it is the only country western title with the correct use of the subjunctive. I wish I were in Dixie tonight, but she's out of town. I'll tell you a secret though. I can speak three languages. (laughs) Thank you, Smith College. But when I became an Arthur, as we say in East Texas, I needed words with a little more salt and chili on them. And I'll tell you why. Because I was dealing with morons. The most corrupt, the most incompetent, the most entertaining bunch of lawmakers on earth. Love at first sight. Heaven on a stick. Representative Mike Martin. Now, he was a, a capital legend. Mike Martin hired a cousin to shoot him and then blame the attack on a satanic communistic cult. Well, he was found out, ran away, and was caught hiding in his mother's stereo cabinet. He always did want to be speaker. Who else? Who, oh, all right. Gib Lewis, now, he mangles our mother tongue something fierce. Naturally, everyone calls his patois gibberish. Okay, imagine, trying to take notes on this. This is abnormal. It is unparalyzed in state history. You should not fire people, but do it through employee nutrition. I want to thank each and every one of you for having extinguished yourself this session I am filled with humidity. Look at that. I mean, they are a gift to my profession. Can you believe that God gave me all this material for free? Now, continuing with my life's goal to work for every news operation in my sovereign state, I took a job with the Dallas Times-Herald. They promised me I could write whatever I wanted. Well, here's what happened. Um, I was writing about Jim Collins, a Republican congressman from Dallas who was reaching such fresh heights of human stupidity. I wrote, if his IQ slips any lower, we'll have to water him twice a day. Uh, The paper got a few phone calls. So they slapped up a billboard to support me and the First Amendment. See, now, I'd like to think James Madison would have been proud. You see, Texas ain't all what people think it is. Just mostly.
3: Actress Kathleen Turner portraying calmness Molly Ivins from the theater piece Red Hot Patriot. Its West Coast debut is this week. You're listening to The Dinner Party from deep in the heart of American public media.
0: For Chattering Class, this is where we talk with someone who knows about something we don't so we can speak about it with semi-authority should the need arise at a get-together. And today our guest is actor Justin Schenk. This week the newspaper LA Weekly published an article about his latest role for the TV show CSI Crime Scene Investigation. And Justin, you want to tell people the the part you played? Uh, I play a corpse. That is correct. That is correct. And we, therefore, are going to learn from you what it takes to pretty literally play dead. First of all, is this a specialty of yours? Well, I I have done it a couple times now. So Spielberg? or?
1: Um, uh, Well, he he did call, but uh, I was already committed to uh, uh, FDR, American Badass. Oh, yeah. Where uh, I was in prosthetics, makeup for three hours, got all... Done as a werewolf, and then uh, was shot by twin Uzis on uh, FDR's wheelchair.
0: I see. Mm-hmm. This is a, a sort of a grindhouse picture, it sounds like, yes. a little bit. yes. But, so you're now a pro at this. Tell us what a day as a corpse is like. Okay, so on CSI,
1: they brought me in. They had the digital photographers and the visual effects guys, the producers. They laid me down on a steel table. Awesome. Yeah. You know, they circled around me with their cameras and took pictures and then stopped at one point and, you know, amongst themselves and, wait a minute, are the taser marks three or four centimeters apart? And then I went back to makeup and got the right taser marks. And I came back and I laid there. And of course, by then, they had already gone on to, you know, other production. And I was, you know, for a while, I was just laying there. Really? Literally laying there on a metal... Slab. you don't even get to sit in a dressing room or something while they go off and do their other thing well I did up to the point where they had me get all the makeup on you know I and see. it was really raining that day it was raining really hard so they didn't want you outside no because it would all spill off I exactly guess. it was just me on a slab and uh, but it was it was funny after a while they forgot about me one guy came in and was like oh my I'm so sorry we <laughs> We were we were over here. Just go, you know, go to crafty and get some food. <sighs> How long had you been sitting there unnoticed? Well, you know, it was only like five minutes, but you know, when you're on a slab Motionless. You start to feel dead.
0: What is, so the actual act of becoming motionless. I mean, I know that there are, for instance, people that sit for long periods of time and it becomes really a problem for them physically. I can imagine it's similar if you have to lie still for a long period of time. How do you deal with it?
1: Yeah, I and I, I gather that there are Actual techniques for playing dead on camera. I don't know them. Really? I, well, there has to be. You know, I mean, people have been playing corpses on camera for years. I as noticed. careers, like well, for yeah, career. You know, you know, Kevin Costner. That's how he started. You know, oh, that's right. In in uh, the Big Chill, right? So yeah, I just kind of made it up. Right. Like for instance? I always notice whenever I'm watching a movie and I see the corpse body doing one of the, you know, the rise and fall. Right. You can't be seen breathing. How did you deal with that? Just kind of laid there, hunched my back a little so I could sneak a couple breaths underneath. You expand your back instead of your stomach? Just kind of expand my back so I can cheat a couple breaths underneath. So on FDR, when I fell forward after being oozied to death, I made sure that I, you know, had one of my elbows down so I could prop my body up and actually sneak in a couple breaths. Create some space to breathe. Yeah. Was it harder than you thought? Easier? It was harder. It was harder than I thought. Yeah, I thought it would just be show up, fall on the ground, lay there. <laughs> you thought this was going to be a sweet gig. <laughs> I thought it was going to be At last, easy. you get paid to lie down on the
0: job. Yeah, exactly.
1: No, I, I, you know, there was a lot of people, especially with FDR, there was a lot of people on set and it was very, don't move, don't move a muscle. We, you know, we... <laughs> That was challenging, you know, because you can't sit there really rigid or your body will start. It'll start vibrating. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to try and find a way to relax. I just imagine people are like screaming at you not to move. Then you you pretty much your body wants to move like crazy, I guess. It wants to twitch. It wants to fidget. I've never had itches like that, that, you know, you're already in partial, you know, mask slash latex. So you're already not exactly comfortable. Was it worth it? Oh, it's totally worth it. You're on our show and in the L.A. Weekly. Exactly. Does it it bother you, perhaps, that this has gotten you more attention than... A little bit, yeah. Nobody cared when I did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but they love the corpse, you know? It's like, the only person who really will be that excited about this would be my mom. Oh, there you are. She would probably has the L.A. Weekly clipping. (laughs) Bronzed. Yes, but lots of people have said, oh, you know, you've found your niche. As long as you don't have to act or speak, you'll get work. <laughs> You're a good-looking guy. It
0: doesn't make sense to me. People can't see this on the radio. but I'm a better-looking corpse. <laughs> no, but very quickly, what is, what's next for you? Now, right now, I'm uh, producing and
1: putting together a pilot presentation uh, for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For the TV?
0: And it's going to be awesome. I bet it will. Do you have the blessings of the Douglas Adams estate? Oh, yes. Man, come back when that's on the air and we'll talk about playing live people. It's on.
3: So, Rico, pretty cool guy. Yeah? But I think he's kind of overstating the difficulty factor here. Really? Yeah, I mean, look, check this out.
0: Good work, but I think it's harder on camera.
3: Whatever. That's my personal opinion. That was, I nailed it.
0: Uh... (laughs) Folks, coming up, we hear a new song from Guided by Voices. We catch the third wave of coffee, and acclaimed director Vim Vendors mimics your reaction when you hear what his new movie is about. Really? Dance? Come on. He said it, not us. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
3: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from your crazy indie rock uncles, guided by Voices. <laughs> they have a new album out. Also, we chat with director Vim Vendors.
0: But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Or in this case, coffee. Yeah, That's food.
3: (laughs) Not too long ago, Rico, we all drank Folgers or Maxwell House, you may recall. And then overnight, we all kind of went latte, and coffee shops started cropping up. And then Starbucks took over those coffee shops. And then every other shop in America, basically, took over. And that's where it stopped for a lot of the country. But in the past couple of years, a new coffee culture has emerged called Third Wave Coffee. Ah, Does that involve angular haircuts and synthesizers? And (laughs) And that would be new wave music. Uh But this is coffee. It involves roasters and extremely high standards. These are basically microbreweries for coffee. All right. And a new one's opening up next month here in L.A. called Handsome Coffee. So I stopped by to chat with two of its owners, Michael Phillips and Chris Owens. They say they reject the third wave label. So I asked them why. Well,
7: it's uh, steeped in a lot of things that aren't necessarily what we all want to go for it's its actually associated with typically coffee bars that are filled with people with tattoos and piercings and riding fixed gear bikes and having bad attitudes and serving coffee in like a weird formulaic way that's not necessarily the, the best way. It, it also it's a gimmick to some extent that doesn't necessarily allow room for the realities of what's actually happening in, in coffee right now because You could say third wave coffee and try and apply it to this whole range of new shops. When in reality, they're all executing at different levels with different coffees and different styles. All
3: right. Well, whether we call it third wave or not, something is definitely happening in coffee right now. New roasters are emerging like your roastery here in L.A. Um, There are coffee blogs. I mean, they're just coffee fanatics like I've never seen before. Why do you think this is?
10: I think there's just a sort of an awakening to craft we're moving back to specialty in a lot of areas i mean we've been into wine and cheese for a long time and then artisan chocolates and actually the the access to information the sharing of the internet like kind of went tandem with everybody's ability to produce great coffee because everyone was talking about what they were doing in extraction or how and there was these discussions on different nerdy aspects of brewing that no one else really cares about but people who are in coffee get super excited about and there's a lot of sharing so I think that I caused an exponential growth. The The level of execution that's really pushing coffee further.
3: And to clarify, by execution you mean the, the actual drinks you're handing over the counter?
7: Absolutely. I mean that's a, the defining difference between coffee as a craft and say craft brewing or winemaking or any of those things. All of those you purchase a finished product in a bottle, you can open, you can pour, and whoever is producing that is represented, you know, to the best that they can be represented simply by you opening it, and enjoying it. Whereas with coffee, execution is everything. That entire six to eight month process of that cherry being picked and processed and shipped and roasted and got into the shops can be ruined in the last five to six minutes if you don't have someone that pays attention to it and takes care of it.
3: Another thing I find fascinating about this kind of new coffee wave is this whole new group of coffee drinks that I've heard ordered from the kind of coffee people in the know, you know, it used to just be lattes and cappuccinos. Now there are all these other drinks, and I wanted to ask you to kind of explain some of them to me, if that'd be okay. Um, for example, I was visiting my friend in England, and he is kind of a coffee fanatic, and he ordered a flat white now, when you hear someone order a flat white as a barista, what are you thinking? Well, to, to effectively answer that, I need to know what their accent is. It's, uh, th- this happened to be an American who married a, a British person, so he was kind of Madonna-level English accent, you know?
10: It's funny. The flat white is a, is, a, is a funny drink to me because it's a Australian, New Zealand thing. And if you poll them all, they all have different answers for what it is. But if, uh, essentially, it's a traditional-sized cappuccino-slash-small-latte with no chocolate on it, no no cocoa powder, which they do in Australia still. So we actually make that as our sort of default six ounce drink. So you wouldn't necessarily have to order that.
3: All right. Another coffee drink I've heard ordered is the Gibraltar. The the Gibraltar It was born out of Blue Bottle in San Francisco. And Blue Bottle, for those who don't know, is uh, one of the first kind of third wave coffee shops to emerge in the US. Yeah. Um, and it's just a small, it, it's called a Gibraltar
10: because it's served in a Libby Gibraltar glass. What does that mean? Uh, Libby is a glass manufacturer. And so it's one of their standard glasses that they make. It's, it's like four and a half ounce glass. That was it. It was supposed to be thinly textured milk, really, really thin and cool. So you could basically slam the thing, drink it really fast. Uh, and it wasn't not on the menu. It was an off menu item that people like, I think that staff actually, it was for them to drink something really fast. And then customers started seeing it and then they wanted one and then it became this thing. And then other coffee shops around San Francisco put it on their or started making it. It was never supposed to be on
3: the menu. It's That's part of the lore is it's never supposed to be on the menu. Okay, the last kind of secret coffee drink I've heard ordered is a Cortado.
7: Essentially like another undefined drink, but a straight-sided small juice glass. Very cool, very thinly steamed. And again, you like. whereas with a flat white, I've been able to give out you know, like a shoe filled with milk and espresso, and it's a flat white, and people are like, fine. <laughs> but with Cortados, I've had people get kind of picky on it, because usually you don't have, like, it's either people from South America or people from Spain, and uh, I've I've never actually had one in either of those locations, but the traditional U.S. version I've seen, uh, small juice glass, straight-sided, about four and a half ounces, very thinly textured milk, very cool. I think in other places, there's actually no foam at all.
3: And actually, I do have one more uh, request I hear in the coffee shop I go to all the time. Uh, Vente Mocha. Um. So by the way, Rico, Mike was the world barista champion in 2011. Wow. Which means, among other things, he has one of the best dismissive glares in the business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they can be pretty severe, can't they? They can. So, uh, so when I order a skinny soy vanilla chai latte from him, I'll know that I'm being judged and condescended to by the best. Nothing but. You'll be exactly outstanding.
3: The best withering gaze around. Excellent, folks. We have some off-menu items of our own to offer you. They live on our flat purple website. You can check them out at dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: Our guest of honor is filmmaker Wim Venders. He is one of the most celebrated German filmmakers of the last few decades. He won can for his movie, Paris, Texas, his film "Wings of Desire is an art house staple. And his documentary, Buena Vista Social Club helped popularize Cuban music. His new documentary is Piña, a three d film featuring the choreography of the late Piña Bausch. and them it is an honor. Thank you for your kind words. You are more than welcome. For those who have not seen any Bausch choreography, can you perhaps describe it? Well, you might be one of these
11: people who think that dance is not for them, and dance could not possibly concern them and include me out, and I was one of you.
0: Really? You were not a a dance fan? I was not a dance fan at all.
11: The first night I saw a double bill of two pieces by Pina Bausch, I had to be forced to go see them by my girlfriend at the time. I thought this was going to be a boring night, because really, dance... Come on. You're into rock and roll. I was into rock and roll. I still am. So I went and instead it changed my life. I found myself on the edge of my seat, weeping uncontrollably, not really understanding what hit me. I just knew it was big. We became friends for 25 years and planned on making this movie for 20 years.
0: The, now, this is something that it seems like a lot of people have these kind of life changing moments with her. Was that her goal, to evoke these kind of epiphanies? Was that what she wanted?
11: I don't know if that was her mission. Her mission was to change dance and return it to common humanity and take it away from the aesthetic
0: exercise it had become. Her dance company has all ages of people in it, for instance. This is not like young, strapping Baryshnikovs only, although there are those guys as well.
11: No, this, this is common humanity, young and old and skinny and voluptuous and... She herself said very early in her career, she said, I'm not interested in how my dancers move. I'm only interested in what moves them, what drives them, what makes them move the way they move. And that is a question you can ask anybody. What makes you walk the way you walk? What makes you do those gestures? The body language that we express ourselves and that reveals so much is largely an unknown language. Most of us don't even know we speak it, and we understand it, and Peanut taught us how to understand it.
0: There's one piece I had a very visceral reaction to, it's the piece called Café Müller, and there's a moment where this woman repeatedly flings herself into the arms of her dancing partner, and then is dropped by him, and then is put back into his arms, and flings her arms around him and is dropped again. And this happens over and over and over again, and it almost literally brought me to tears, it almost brings me to tears thinking about it now. Have you intellectually figured out what is going on there?
11: That was the first piece I saw. That was the piece that I just wept through from first minute to last. And that was one of the scenes that had me sobbing because I just didn't understand how Pina could tell me so much about men and women, how we love each other, how we lose each other, how we cling to each other and how we drop each other. All that without a single word. I felt that in this 40 minutes, the piece is 40 minutes long, Pina told me more about men and women than the
0: entire history of cinema. Did it bum you out a little (laughs) bit as a director?
11: Absolutely. I mean, Pina is an incredible lesson for filmmakers. Film directors, we're sort of cocky because we think we have a handle on body language because we have actors in front of our camera sometimes famous actors, and we tell them what to do and we tell them how to move and we correct them so we think we're experts and then you watch Pina and you watch the wealth of expression and all of a sudden it makes us film directors look like bloody illiterates <laughs> in their film truly I mean we stand there naked we have nothing to show that was one of the reasons I wanted to make the movie to understand how she was able to do that
0: Earlier you mentioned the idea of movement as like a universal language and this is something that comes up a lot in your films. A lot of your movies have featured characters that speak many different languages. They're very cosmopolitan, very international. Why do you keep returning to that in so many of your films?
11: Well, in most of the media, in most of art, we learn that we're different. There's nationality and races and people from that place and people from that. And we learn about our differences. And I think the, the one lesson to be learned today is that we're all the same. We even have a common language. And that is what well, music is, another common language. But the language of our bodies is a common language. Some of us just don't know it. And we had to be shown that we own that language and that we are competent in it and that we can trust it.
0: I have to say, that kind of sentiment, I totally imagine that kind of sentiment coming from you. I feel like your movies are very optimistic, they're very humanistic, and they're also kind of simultaneously intellectual and very sincere, which are qualities that you don't see in movies that often anymore. I'm sure this comes naturally from you, but at a certain point, is it almost a statement now to be making movies, you know, sort of showing those qualities?
11: Well, unfortunately, it has become sort of a statement, and it has become almost... An outsider statement. I don't know. I'm not an intellectual. I, I'm really not. I'm, I'm a guy who's really working much more from the guts. But I don't know. I love the idea of movies being something you can learn from. I make my films so I learn something myself and I go through a certain experience. I didn't know much about dance, didn't know anything about 3D when we started this film.
0: Let me ask you about that, actually. You're not the only German documentarian to be making movies in three dimensions. You also have Werner Herzog doing Cave of Forgotten Dreams. What is the attraction to the documentarian to 3D?
11: It's really funny that these two old German warhorses like Werner Herzog and myself are now all of a sudden into a whole new world. And opening up 3D to a different application, which seriously I think will be the main application of it in the near future. I think it is an ideal way for documentary filmmakers to take your audience into the world of somebody else. And it is not expensive anymore. It was owned by the studios for a while, but then... In the 90s, digital filmmaking was also owned by the studios. Today, there's no documentary that is not made on a digital basis. And I think it'll be the same with 3D. In a couple of years, we will remember the old days when documentaries were made flat.
0: It'll be like black and white. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We have two questions that we ask everyone on our show. The first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked?
11: You would have a hard time to find me at a dinner party (laughs) because I'm scared of the small talk.
0: We actually have a segment on our show called Small Talk. You will not be invited, I guess. I'm
11: not good at it. Sometimes, like, maybe if I have a couple of glasses, I can come up with some funny small talk. But
0: basically, I think it's such a waste of time. The conversation we just had was enlightening, I feel.
11: It wasn't small talk. It was big talk. (laughs) Well, that's true.
0: The ideal dinner party...
11: You don't just go, oh, good to see you again. Uh, I'll call you tomorrow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty lousy party. Uh, Our second question, it's more of an order. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be either about yourself or just something that you think would impress people or or surprise them. Oh, boy. I
11: think you probably don't know what W.C. Fields and Eddie Murphy
0: have in common. W.C. Fields and Eddie Murphy have something in common.
11: I learned that yesterday.
0: I was walking on Hollywood Boulevard. And you know the stars? Just to explain to people who don't live in California, this is the Hollywood Walk of Fame where you have like stars on the sidewalk and there are stars and filmmakers' names on them.
11: Yeah, yeah. And there's a corner where there's lots of stars and somebody put W.C. Fields and Eddie Murphy next to each other, pra- practically lying on top of each other. And I wonder who decided that.
0: Do you not see any comparison between the two? They're both comedians.
11: I have a hard time seeing... W.C. Fields and Eddie Murphy communicate.
3: See, Rico, what Mr. Vendors doesn't seem to know is that W.C. Fields was originally going to star in Norbit (laughs) back in 1932. (gasps) It's true. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that either. It took a long time getting to the screen.
0: But it was just one of those scripts that demanded to be made, I guess.
3: It's true, yeah. And Fields (laughs) could have done it without a fat suit.
0: It's a shame we never saw that. And that's the dinner party for this week. Next week, we talk to Stephen Merchant, co-creator of the TV show The Office, about whether fame has changed him. You know, I, I, I think
11: I'm still the same lovable leggy blonde I always was.
3: Speaking of, Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin.
0: And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
3: And one group of guys you hopefully won't find on the road, since they're never in any condition to drive, are guided by voices... These lo-fi indie giants from ages ago are back with a new album called Let's Go Eat the Factory. Yes, and drink some beer. Probably. Here's a track from it called The Unsinkable Fats Domino. Bon appétit. How
6: should cycle?
3: And he like me, I'm sick of it That's domino And tell it all around then About this love that found
0: Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano, And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan.
10: Hey, guys. Oh, hey, Jackson. Uh, great show. I was going to go run out for coffee. Do you guys want anything?
3: Skinny vanilla chai latte, yeah. I'll just take a regular cup of coffee.
10: <laughs> Seriously, what do you want?
3: Just a cup of coffee. Do you have a second option? I don't think they have just coffee. Yeah,
0: Brendan, you're embarrassing me.